morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is May 11th, 2015. This is broadcast number 82. And I was just commenting to our guest a few seconds ago, actually, that I feel like it's been a long time since I've done one of these, and that's probably because it's true. It has been a while. I have been very busy, as many of you know, getting uh, done with licensure and finishing up the semester here at the seminary. And so that is pretty much all behind me. And um, the only thing left really is finals ahead and uh, be glad to see the semester go and the summer begin. But uh, the work never stops. And so Anyway, we're going to be talking this morning, and it is morning here on the East Coast. Uh, you may, it may not be morning where you are, but it's morning where I am. But uh, um, we're going to be talking with Dr. Ryan McGraw. He is an, currently an adjunct professor of the seminary, but that's going to change here in weeks, literally in a few weeks. Um, will he be coming on campus to, um, to begin t- his work and labors at the seminary there full-time um, in the areas of systematic theology and I'm sure other uh, areas, but we're going to be talking with him about a book that he did um, not all that long ago, but not brand new either. On the uh, the title of it is the foundation of communion with God, the Trinitarian piety of John Owen. Now, now, if you know anything about Dr. McGraw, you know that if you say John Owen uh, in any sentence, you generally garner some some level of excitement with him um, because that was what part of his PhD work was. I think was on so. Um, so anyway, we're going to be talking with him and more about that in just a minute. Uh, real quick update. Um, the biggest news coming out of the podcast arena here at the seminary is that, and it's really not related to the podcast, but Dr. Piper now has a website. It's something we've been working on for a while where we're trying to put some of his lectures and his materials, writings, articles, books, that kind of stuff there for the public to consume at their leisure. So it's simply josephpiper.com. So take advantage of that as you're able. Of course, the seminary website is not changed from the last podcast we did, gpts.edu, and the podcast website, confessingourhope.com. Of course, there's the mobile app and other resources available there, and shortly the entire theology conference from this year will be on the mobile app as well. So look for that in the next few weeks. As I indicated, we'll be talking with Dr. McGraw. He is uh, coming to us uh, live, well, live right now, from Northern California. Um, And uh, so, Ryan, it's good to have you on again to talk about a subject I know is near and dear to your heart. And uh, so I look forward to this discussion. Thanks, Bill. Good to be with you. Tell us quickly, um, the book you've written, The Foundation of Communion with God, The Trinitarian Piety of John Owen, it comes out of a series called Profiles in Reformed Spirituality. Can you give the listeners maybe just a quick, real quick background as to the series? I know this is not the only book, of course, there's many. Yes, this is a very helpful series that Reformation Heritage has put together. And basically the goal of the series is to take some reformed thinker from the history of of our heritage and introduce the author to a popular audience. So, for example, with a man like John Owen, who's who's written thousands of pages of material, uh, many people will not read much of that material, and so the goal would be to introduce the man, why he's important, how Christ used him to build the church, and then to give people direct readings from the work of each author in the series. So basically, these books could be used as sort of a, a, 
uh, nightstand devotional book mm. or something mm. like that where you can read, I think it's like uh, 700 to 1,000 words, which is about a page and a half to two pages each time. And so it introduces you to the authors directly, and it's designed to give a wonderful devotional material. Yeah, they are. They're, they're, for those who are not familiar with the series, they are not very long, and, and he's right. It's a couple pages per section. The book I'm holding in my hand that we're talking about today has about 148 pages. So you can consume it relatively quickly and get a good summary of basic foundational truths that come out of the writings of the individuals that they're talking about. And this particular book is is the subject. It comes out of the life and work of John Owen. Now, the title... Um, Ryan, is the foundation of communion with God. Now, when I was taking my licensure exam, I was asked to briefly discuss what it mean, what union with Christ means. That was kind of humorous because I thought briefly, <laughs> briefly, <laughs> sure, no problem. It's a big subject. And so is this one, communion with God. And, and, but you've distilled it, I think, in the book and taken a lot of it from Owen's writings. What are we talking about? Well, basically, when we are describing communion with God, perhaps the easiest way to begin is our larger catechism describes the entire process of salvation in terms of union and communion with Christ in grace and in glory. And union with Christ is the foundation of communion with God. And so the idea is that as we're united to Christ, we receive Christ and in him all the benefits of redemption. So now as we embrace Christ, as he embraces us, we are justified, adopted, sanctified, and through perseverance eventually are glorified. And so as we go through this process of perseverance and sanctification and we're moving forward and onward and upward, we walk in communion and fellowship with the triune God. And of course, one of John Owen's most famous books goes by the title Communion with God, in which he develops these themes in an explicitly Trinitarian fashion. So what we're really talking about here is, in the Christian life, how do we cultivate fellowship with each of the persons in the Godhead, and how do we walk with God in every aspect of theology and what we believe, as well as in every area of life and what we do? Mm. Well, that was brief. That was good. <laughs> Very good. I'm not sure I could have said it that way, but um, maybe might get my licensure revoked for making that comment. But anyway, <laughs> it, 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 so it's, it, 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 I think the emphasis that you were driving at there, and, and it really is the subtitle of the book as well, is this Trinitarian focus, this Trinitarian emphasis. And then it, it, someone, I don't know if it was you, elected to use the subtitle as the Trinitarian piety of John Owen. Now, so what are we what are we talking about there? I mean that's sort of more specifically oriented trinitarian piety. I mean I know what piety is. I think most people do, but what do you mean by this the adjective that's that's in front of that word? Well, um maybe I should back up and as something of a prelude and and on somewhat of a comical note, 
you'll notice on the back of the book that one of the endorsements is from Sinclair Ferguson. And in God's providence, the same week that the book arrived in the mail that I had prepared on John Owen, on the Trinitarian piety of Owen, uh, Ferguson had also written and published a book on the Trinitarian devotion of John Owen. So here he was uh, endorsing my book and then the same week uh, published one of his own. And I think making the comparison actually is helpful because where he uses the term devotion and I use the term piety, we're largely speaking about the same thing in the sense that our, our piety really deals with our experimental godliness or our experience of the saving power of the triune God in our hearts and lives. And so really it almost becomes a synonym for walking with God and Ferguson's title of devotion, of course, uh, delves deeper into that and, uh, and deals with the aspect of worship of God. But uh, the difference, I should say, between the two books is his is largely a guided tour through John Owen's book on communion with God. And what I've done, actually, because of the nature of the series and partly because of my own work on Owen, what I've actually done is, is using these themes of the Trinity and communion with God and worship of God, I have went, or, or gone through Owen's own writings, and by using the primary sources, I think I've cited 16 or 17 out of the volumes that Owen wrote there, and I try to lead readers by the hand through Owen himself. So it's not just treating communion with the triune God in light of one book, but in light of the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Scripture, ecclesiology, soteriology, and virtually every aspect of our our theology and what we believe and how it affects our lives. So in terms of the Trinitarian aspect, I believe that this is a, a largely neglected area because when people think of the Trinity, I don't think the first thing that comes to mind for most Christians is something that is practical. We may recognize it's a fundamental article of the faith. Some may even begin to question that because they don't know what the, what the big deal is and what the point is. And what Owen is stressing and what I am, am passionate and prayerful about seeking to recover is, as Votius once put it, the Trinity is not just a practical doctrine, it is the most preeminently practical doctrine in the entire Bible. Because without the doctrine of the Trinity, we have no gospel. We have no sovereign Father choosing us to everlasting life, no Son purchasing our redemption, not only as a man, but as the divine Son, giving efficacy to the entire work of Christ, and no divine spirit who unites us to Christ and brings us to the Father through the Son. And usually when I begin to unfold some of this from Scripture, people are often very surprised, but Mm. also delighted and find a new depth of uh, their devotion to God. And so I think this practical Trinitarianism that Owen exemplifies so well is something of a lost art in Christianity and impoverishes our 
devotion to the Lord and the depths of our fellowship with him. So I think it's a very important theme in and of itself to seek to recover. And uh, maybe one other thing is the main title, The Foundation of Communion with God, comes from the Savoy Declaration of Faith and Order. And in the Savoy Declaration, this was a Congregationalist attempt in the 1650s to build on the Westminster Confession of Faith and change things to, to match their Congregationalist distinctives. But they also began to, to add some doctrinal phrases and doctrinal emphases that met the needs of the time. And one of the problems at the time was both the Arminians in the, on the continent and the Sicinians on the continent and in England were denying that there was any practical value to the doctrine of the Trinity whatsoever. And so in Savoy's treatment of the Trinity, the one phrase they add to uh, the Westminster Confession is that this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and something like our, our comfort in Him as well. And mm. so they're trying to stress this idea that, that if we don't have this practical emphasis on the Trinity, then the doctrine itself becomes threatened. You made you made a comment earlier, and I want to come back to this. Um, it just th- sort of popped into my head as you were talking about, especially the Holy Spirit. Um, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it's been my observation in twenty some odd years in Reformed, in the Reformed camp, um, that the Holy Spirit seems to be. Um, I don't want to say marginalized. That's really not the right word, but it seems to be the forgotten person, as it were, in the divine in the triune Godhead. Now, is that Am I saying too much or maybe being inaccurate by saying that? Has that been your experience? And if so, why do you think that is? You know, I've, um, I've often heard that said in terms of the Trinity being the forgotten person of the Godhead. And um, I've, I've puzzled over it back and forth because in terms of historic Reformed theology, it's certainly not the case right? because right. the historic Reformed Church basically viewed the Roman Catholic Church as not only replacing Christ with the Church, but um, but replacing the Holy Spirit with the Church, and specifically with their sacramental system, where salvation becomes something like an automatic process of going through a machine and and putting out a product as as the raw materials of the worshiper go through the sacramental system. And so in response, Reformed theology has always placed a premium on the Holy Spirit as the first person in the Godhead who meets us immediately and comes to us and changes the heart and makes the Word of God come alive in our souls and and directs us to prayer and leads us to Christ. And, And basically the Holy Spirit then in Reformed theology becomes the linchpin of the personal application of the gospel in every respect. Mm. I suspect that part of the charge of forgetting the Holy Spirit may actually come from the Pentecostal movement in the 20th century, where the idea is that if the Spirit is predominantly working through the Word of God, 
then suddenly you don't have this dynamic experience of communion with God the Spirit, but really you're relegated to a piece of paper or a collection of papers and a book. And there's a tendency among many Christians to look for something more and to mm-hmm. view this as something that is, is not really a dynamic, interactive way of knowing the Lord. And so there becomes a stress on the charismatic gifts instead. But I think as we redevelop or recover a proper Trinitarian emphasis on the gospel, well, then what you have is not simply a, a dead letter in the Bible, but you end up having a book in which the Father communicates the character of God and his own heart to his people. And then you have the Son exemplifying and putting on display the glory of the Father's self-revelation. And then the Spirit taking the Word of God to, to apply the Father's words delivered to us by the Son and make them powerful and operative in our hearts. And so historically in Reformed theology, there's been this wonderful emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. And if that gets lost in contemporary theology, then it's not only because we perhaps fail to read our Bibles correctly, but fail to read our history correctly, because there are abundant witnesses to this dynamic interaction with the Spirit. Sure. Do we lose some of this Trinitarian influence? Um, I mean, I kind of know your answer already. That's why I'm asking the question. Um, Do we kind of lose this Trinitarian influence in worship in our modern churches? We can. The focus seems to always be on the second person, and that's good, and it should be. And, 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 but I've also often wrestled with it individually, personally, with, okay, how do we see the whole Godhead at work here in, in worship? I think, I think there's a couple of ways to approach that. And this, this uh, by way of a sedgeway, can lead us back to Owen. Right. Because one of the main themes that he addresses is meeting with the triune God in public worship. Right. And there are... Uh, two short sermons somewhere in the beginning of volume uh, nine of his works that deals with the nature and the beauty of public worship. Both sermons are actually an exposition of Ephesians 2.18, which says that by one spirit we come to the Father through him. And so it's a Trinitarian passage where we're coming to the Father through the Son by one spirit. And what he does is basically says the the glory of public worship consists in knowing the triune God. And uh, and he presents things specifically in terms of of worship. Uh, Interestingly, in, in light of your earlier comment about the Holy Spirit, I'm almost more and more convinced that the forgotten person of the Godhead is not the Holy Spirit, but the Father. Because the Father is almost taken for granted and pushed into the background as though, well, we all agree about his deity, and therefore we don't really need to think about him much more, and so we place all the attention on Christ. What Owen actually stresses so well in those sermons and really throughout his writings is that when we think about the Father as our Father in Christ, 
the term adoption virtually summarizes all the benefits of the gospel that we receive. And so there's a certain priority and preeminence on calling upon the Father in our worship. Now, at the same time, that doesn't deny the biblical emphasis on the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is a preeminent privilege, and maybe the height of our privilege is exemplified in calling God our God and our Father. But at the same time, we read in Scripture that no one comes to the Father except by the Son. We also read in the same section of Scripture in John that when the Spirit comes, He would come to glorify Christ and to testify to Christ. So there's a preeminence in calling upon the Father and a preeminent privilege, but there is a Christ-centered and Christ-focused Trinitarianism that we find in the Bible. So it's no accident, for example, that in Owen's communion with God, he spends virtually twice as much time dealing with communion with the Son than he does with the Father and the Spirit, because there is an appropriate biblical emphasis here. But in terms of worship, if I can just give one example that may be helpful, is if we simply begin to think more self-consciously in scriptural terms, then I believe it would go a long way to recover our Trinitarian piety and devotion. And just one example, as we think about prayer, uh, if we go to the Bible and ask, what does the Bible say about prayer? Well, Jesus says when we pray, we're to pray our Father. Mm -hmm. But he also says that we are to come to the Father in his name. Mm -hmm. So our address in our prayer is predominantly to be going to the Father, reflecting this preeminency of our adoption in Christ and our need to approach the Father. But at the same time, it's self-consciously calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ worshiping all three persons of the Godhead equally and resting on Christ and the benefits of his mediation. But then at the same time, in Romans 8, we also read of the Spirit interceding in our hearts. And so, as many have said, we have two great intercessors, one in heaven who intercedes on our behalf before the Father, and that's Christ, and the other who intercedes in our hearts and enables us to pray. And so in any prayer, if we're simply thinking about prayer in biblical terms, then the minister in leading the worship service should be praying a self-conscious and explicitly Trinitarian prayer. And we shouldn't get confused among the persons. We need to know how they operate, who we're addressing, and why, and don't confuse them. So I'll often hear uh, people say, um, we, we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for A, B, and C, and then without um, uh, changing their address or, or anything, we'll immediately start addressing the Father and start confusing the persons in the prayer. So we need to remember the Father is the one who plans our redemption, the Son purchases, and the Spirit applies, and that needs to be reflected in our prayers. Excuse me. I was gonna. I'm gonna ask a question that I'm sure somebody out there is thinking about right now. Is it wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit? You know, I um, I've frequently received this question 
in past years, uh, largely from Baptist circles. And the reason why I mention that is, is I'm not trying to pick on Baptists or anybody else, but I know it's been a controversy among Reformed Baptists whether it's lawful to pray to the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of ways that you could approach the subject and, and deal with this. I, I would say this, that prayer is an act of worship. And the reason why we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is because they are the one true and eternal God. And so it's not that each person has a piece of the Godhead, but the entirety of the Godhead uh, is, uh, is, is, is I, I don't want to say part of, but is uh, in t- each person has the entirety of the Godhead. They interpenetrate one another. They have this mutual indwelling and this mutual fellowship among one another. So to worship one person is to worship all three. And in that sense, the Holy Spirit is just as much the direct object of worship as the Father and the Son. So prayer, or for that matter, any other aspect of worship, ought to be directed to the Spirit, and it would be appropriate to do so. So we cannot forbid prayers to the Spirit. The only caveat that I would make there is we also need to reflect not only the ontology or being of the persons, where we're worshiping them as divine, but we also have to reflect the economy or what they actually do and how God Mm -hmm. reveals himself. So it's very significant, isn't it, that in the New Testament, we are told to approach God as Father. And to my knowledge, there is only one example in the entire New Testament of a prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, of course, the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 7 when he says uh, he, he sees Christ standing at the Father's right hand and effectively prays that Christ would receive him into his presence. So you do have that, uh, but you don't see any direct examples of the Spirit. I think the inference is good, and we would have warrant and reason to pray directly to the Spirit. But I think the best way to proceed is to follow the method prescribed by Christ himself, to pray Mm -hmm. to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And if our address is to the Father, but our faith rests in the Son, and we're also depending upon the Spirit to work in our hearts, we're not just depending upon the Son and the Spirit in a vague way, but we're actually engaged in an act of worship since God alone is really the object of our faith. And so if we're praying a proper Trinitarian prayer, we are worshiping all three persons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good answer. I, I've heard many people make you know that, that, for lack of a better word, the formula to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit is the best biblical example and approach. Um, but because of the overemphasis on the signed gifts and some of the other issues that we see going on, it, sometimes even these worship services seem to be only focused on the Spirit, and the Father and the Son seem to fade into the background, and, and then the prayer issues. And So I wanted to ask that. I'm sure somebody was thinking it somewhere. At least I was. So there's, there's one. 
one person. The, the book itself is broken down into three different sections. Um, the, the first section, Knowing God is Triune. And the second section, I think it's three. Yeah, three. Uh, the second section is Heavenly Mindedness and Apostasy. And then the third is the Covenant in the Church. Now, in the first section, uh, as I was looking at it, um, there is one brief chapter. They're all brief. Um, that makes this comment, this statement that caught my eye because I remember Ian Hamilton at a Banner of Truth conference, which is a plug for the Banner of Truth conference, by the way, if you don't go and haven't gone and would like to go, uh, I would encourage you to go, uh, bannerofTruth.com. Um, anyway, uh, Dr. Hamilton made a comment in one of his lectures, sermons, I forget what it, what it was. Um, he said, without the Spirit, we might as well burn our Bibles. And I admit, when I heard that statement, I had never heard it before. So that tells you how much I read Owen. Um, he said that Owen said that, and, and I remember thinking, that is absolutely the most remarkable comment I have ever heard about the work of the Spirit and the Word of God. And so can you maybe elaborate a little further on, on why, why would Owen say that, and what's the, what's the relevance? Why is that practically important? Yeah, and, and I think that question exemplifies what we've already discussed to some extent mm -hmm. about the high view of the Holy Spirit in Reformed theology. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has said on, on a few occasions uh, or given a brief statement about the relationship of the Spirit to the Word that I've always found helpful and memorable. And it is that if we have the Word without the Spirit, we dry up. If we have the Spirit without the Word, we blow up. And if we have the Word and the Spirit together, we grow up. Interesting. And I think that exemplifies what Owen is getting at is, uh, if, if I could borrow a phrase from Jonathan Edwards, Edwards said that Satan had studied in the best divinity school in the universe. But, mm. of course, his nature is still the devil. And that's what Owen is getting at in that, that phrase, is, is basically, if all you have is your Bible, and you read your Bible all day long, every day, but you're not actually walking in fellowship with God, you're not born from above, and the Spirit is not applying Christ to your hearts to bring you to God the Father, then you may as well burn your Bibles because they won't do you any good. And one practical outcome of that is, for example, in our, our family worship, this is why I always tell our young children, this is why we pray before we open the Bible is we're recognizing that unless the Spirit of God helps us to read and apply what we are reading, then it can't profit our souls. Mm -hmm. And so we have an absolute dependence on, on the third person of the Trinity. Yeah, it becomes just a mental exercise. I, I remember you, you and I had had um, a conversation oh, a couple of years ago, maybe. You probably don't even remember it, um, but I do. Um, it was very informal. It was in passing, but it st struck me um, a statement that you made about just studying in seminary and how uh, you made a conscious effort to always pray and ask for the Spirit's help and guidance as you were studying whatever material it was, uh, whether it was Greek, Hebrew, or whatever, um, recognizing that in and of ourselves we are incapable of understanding any of this material. And it's not just an exercise in, in, uh, of the intellect, but it's also an exercise of the heart. 
in the mind and act of worship and that which relates to our overall well-being as Christians before a holy God. And I thought to myself after you made generally that comment, I, I said to myself, you know what? I don't think I've ever done that because I because we want to believe that we're so capable and so able to uh, to learn and understand and apply this material without without the help of the spirit at all and that's just foolhardy and and so i made a dramatic shift in my approach to studying which i'd like to think has been more helpful long term um as a result but i mean it really captures the same same idea we we approach the scriptures whether it's family worship whether it's public worship whether it's private individual worship and we don't pray we don't demonstrate our dependence on the spirit we're not, what are we really saying to a holy God? I don't need your help. I can get this. Right. And so that's really a, a sample for the listeners of the practical nature of this book. It really caused you to think deeply about some things. I mean, that whole first section is really goes through the Trinity. It goes, starts with the Father. It goes to the Son. I, I'm grateful to you to have, there's a section in there on adoption. Um, I, I just written a paper for one of Dr. Piper's classes on the subject and, and was actually shocked at such how little this was actually, the, the subject of adoption was treated prior to the Southern Presbyterians in the 1800s. I mean, I know it was mentioned here and there, but it wasn't a, a major focus. But anyway, mm-hmm. section two deals with heavenly mindedness and apostasy. Now, <laughs> I got to admit that I don't know what the connection is between heavenly mindedness and apostasy. Are they, are, you, are those designed to go together, or is that just an overarching categorical statement? They they are designed to go together uh, in the sense that most of what I have there is taken from Owen's two books that that uh, relate to those titles. He's got the nature and duty of being heavenly minded. And then also the nature and dangers of apostasy. Mm. And in a way, they're two sides of one coin. Uh, Just as with God's covenants and God's law, we have both threats and promises coupled together. And with God's commandments, we have uh, requirements as well as prohibitions coupled together. In this respect, that's what Owen does in these two books, they are opposite sides of a single coin. So on the one hand, when he deals with heavenly mindedness, he's dealing with a positive cultivation of communion with the triune God, not as directly as he does in his book of communion with God, uh, titled communion with God. But as you can see uh, from Mm -hmm. the readings that I provide, the Trinitarian emphases are still there and they still come out. And then in the book on apostasy, what you really have is the end product of the neglect or the decline of spiritual affections and communion with God. And so when he is describing heavenly mindedness and the spiritual affections, he's really talking about a fellowship with God that sets its sights on heaven and works itself from the inside out. And so it begins with uh, a heart work, such as you see in his other books on the mortification of sin and sin and temptation, Mm -hmm. those types of things. And you are cultivating godly affections and, and love for the persons of the Godhead. When we begin to decline in these things, 
then the end result ends up being apostasy. So if I could take one example, he places a special stress on the public worship of God as being one of the primary means of promoting fellowship with the triune God. And he will say in, in the same book that, uh, in fact, in the book on spiritual mindedness, I believe, is where this is, that, that he'll argue on the one hand, if we love the triune God and we respect the Father's authority, we come to the Son's mediation, we trust in the Spirit to work, then we're consigned to Scripture. And so that means that our worship needs to be regulated exclusively by the Bible. And so that comes out of a heart that loves God. So, for example, to make that contemporary, people often say, well, it doesn't matter what you do in worship, it just matters that your heart's in the right place. Well, what Owen's saying is, if what Owen's really stressing is, if your heart is in the right place, your heart is going to love Scripture. Right. And the triune God reveals himself in Scripture, and your love for the persons of the Godhead will drive you to a scriptural, simple worship. But then he says on the other side, if you have the right things in worship, and you're simply proud that we're doing the right things and that church over there is wrong, then he basically says, well, that church over there may have faulty worship but enjoy true communion with God, and you may uh, fall into decline and pride and apostasy because of being proud of her doing the right thing. So if you love God, you want to do the right thing. But if you love God, you also want to do the right thing in the right way and not just come rejoicing in the externals. And he actually goes so far as to say when we come to public worship, every true believer will count the experience of a public worship service a total loss if he doesn't walk away with a deeper sense of the presence of the triune God hmm. and, and have genuine communion with God. And basically, that's, that's why we read our Bibles. That's why we worship. That's why we're doing anything. Yeah, that's, as you were talking, I, thought, I was thinking to myself, this sounds like another great argument for the regulative principle and why we hold so strongly in the Presbyterian tradition um, to that position of worship, and I just, I, anyway, I don't even know if that matters, but it just struck me as you were talking. Yeah. Now, it, it, it does lead, of course, then I think, if, if, I'm under, if I'm getting inside your head a little bit, section three is on the covenant and the church. It's sort of, and as I'm looking at some of the material that's there, um, there's sort of the outplaying of some of these other aspects that you did, dealt with in chapter, in, or in section two, such as the Lord's Supper, benedictions, um, the Sabbath, of course, and um, so okay. So, so it does section three relate to section two? Are they compl are they mutually exclusive elements, or, are there, or is there a connection? If you go through the individual chapters, the the overall thrust is is tracing these trinitarian themes basically through mm -hmm. all of the different loci or subjects of systematic theology. So we go from the doctrine of God through the personal work of Christ, uh, of course, down through the Spirit, and then you have um, these, these devotional aspects of what it actually means to know God in terms of, of our salvation and soteriology. But then when we come to the section dealing with 
the uh, covenant and the church. Basically, you're, you're moving through these themes of Christology and soteriology via covenant theology into the doctrine of the church. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, which of course also takes us to eschatology or last things, because in all of this, we are enjoying communion with the triune God on earth as a foretaste or a down payment of glory. And so there is a, a logical movement in the book. And Owen never wrote a systematic theology, but through the primary readings, this book is designed to be a systematic introduction into Owen's thought. So that's the overarching connection. Right, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm glad to see the, the continuing discussion on a subject that, um, this is probably going to get me in trouble, but, uh, well, I don't know. What, one of the things, I love Mother's Day, don't get me wrong. I do. I wish my, my wife happy Mother's Day yesterday. I know it was the Lord's Day, but I still did it. Um, between her and me and my house and as we're leaving to go to worship. (laughs) Um, But I get frustrated, I think, at some level with, um, you know, Facebook and those kinds of things where the focus becomes Mother's Day and that's nice and great and and I love moms. Don't get me wrong, I do, but it's the Lord's Day. (laughs) So I'm glad there was a section in here on that subject, whereas we are still continually trying to think through these things, um, you know, subjects like the benediction, I mean, how many people in church on a weekly basis get even have a, a remote understanding of what a benediction is and why it's important? Right. Or is it just something we do because we're Presbyterian and we're Reformed and that's what we do? I mean, if you, I, I would suggest if you ask the average layperson sitting in the pew, why did the pastor pronounce the benediction? Were you even listening? <laughs> or is this just the end? Is this a glorified period on the end of the worship service? So right. I was thankful to see that in this chapter and, and, um, and it's something to uh, cause us to continually think through and deal with. I did have one question, though. Um, you've mentioned on a number of occasions Owen's works, um, and, and you've gained a lot of this material. Much of this material in this book is, is structured from that. Did you pr- primarily stick to the works, the 16 volumes, or was there other material that you were also uh, borrowing from? Uh, basically, when I refer to the works... Mostly what I'm referring to is uh, the full 24 volumes. So basically what that means is the Banner of Truth edition that is, is available now is based on the 19th century edition by William Gould. And the first mm-hmm. 17 volumes of the Gould edition were what are now the 16 volumes of the Banner set. The reason why uh, one volume is missing is it's primarily about seven or eight hundred pages in Latin. And so because most modern readers didn't read that, it was omitted from the Banner edition. And then volumes 18 through 24, which are now 16 through 23 in the Banner edition, are uh, the seven volumes on Hebrews. Oh, and, right, uh, right. So what I've, what I've done is, as I mentioned, I think I've, I've cited... 16 or 17 of those volumes, including some material from the uh, one of the Latin volumes. He wrote a book called Theologumina Pantodapa, which was actually a uh, series of lectures that he gave to Oxford students 
relating to the study of theology. And unfortunately, it's been translated under the title Biblical Theology, which in a modern context gives people completely the wrong idea regarding what he's, he's trying to do in that volume, because he's actually trying to set up the nature of theological studies and the study of theology in light of the, uh, a few central doctrines of the Bible. And so that's why he, he proceeds the way he does. But anyway, um, I've, I've tried to give people a wide range of, of Owen's works, because I think what, what I've found by my experience and by talking to others is that when you look at the works of John Owen, ministers and others get, get very ambitious about what they want to read, and then when they actually try to do it, you realize that it takes you a lot longer and the works are a lot bigger than you thought. And uh, we, we never get through them. And so my hope here was at least to digest some of the essence of what's there. And if it prompts people to read two or three books from Owen, then that's wonderful and praise the Lord. And I pray that blesses the souls of the readers. But if nothing else, they will at least get this, this strong devotional Trinitarian emphasis by reading the primary sources. Yep. And, 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 mention, and, 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 and following on that just quickly is the Appendix A in this book. Um, if you've ever looked at Owen and you thought, yeah, I'd love to read it, but it scares me half, scares me half to death because there's just so much material. Um, Dr. McGraw has included an, a, an appendix in this little devotional book um, on the subject of reading Owen. And it's very practical, helpful. Um, I actually, I think I had a copy of this before it actually made it to the publisher. Um, because I think I asked you mm-hmm. for it. Um, and, and, and so he goes through different questions, uh, different issues, like why is Owen hard to read, what to read. In other words, he gives you some uh, suggestions of, you know, don't try to start in volume one. In other words, start here, start here, do this, do this. Um, it gives a basic summary and overview of some of the works. And it, so in other words, it helps you as the reader, um, digest as it were some of the 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 massive amounts of things that owen said and is written on and um so it i mean just that appendix as far as i'm concerned if you're looking for a further if you're looking for a way to further study and read john owen this appendix is is in my opinion just worth the price of the book all alone but i again i had that appendix before the book actually got published i think (laughs) um yeah and and so it was helpful to me, to see that and, and know that I don't got to start in volume one and just plod through and, and get to volume 16 and go, I didn't learn a thing or I'm completely a disaster now and I'm my brain's a mush. And there's a lot there. It's it, In some sense, it's like reading Calvin Institutes. You, know, you take it in small doses, but but take it in small doses. Don't just ignore it because it's so big. Um, and uh, so the appendix, I think, is very helpful. But I wanted to get that in there because I think it's, it's a good resource um, just for those who might want to read further and go beyond that. But until then, get this book. I mean, it's, as Dr. McGraw said, it's a, it's a book that is helpful. Um, you can throw it by your bed and before you go to sleep at night, read a chapter or two. It'll take you all of five minutes to read one chapter and then think about it um, and, and think about the material. And it will get you excited if you want to go further with the reading of Owen. And it's heavily footnoted, so you can go to the primary sources and look those things up as well. So, and get even more of Owen in that subject. Now, of course, you can get the book, Ryan, from... 
Uh, just about anywhere. <laughs> yeah, Re- Reformation Heritage, of course, is the publisher and, and distributor. So heritagebooks.org, or uh, they also carry it on Amazon and, and I'm sure several other places. Sure. Now, do you know if there's any more coming out? I mean, it's already got, uh, I'm not going to be able to do this in five seconds, but uh, three, six, nine, tw- I think it's got 12 volumes, so I did do it in five seconds. Um, 12 volumes, I think, currently. Um, are there more coming? Do you know of? I'm I'm sure there are. I don't know what they have planned, but the, I, my understanding is the series has done fairly well because it introduces some of these classic authors and works to a broader audience, yep. and so it's it's been a good thing. I mean, for example, um, my wife has used my book on Owen and uh, Mark Jones and and Joel Beakey on Thomas Goodwin as devotional books and and she'll read a couple pages a day and it's designed to do that and still be profitable so um uh, there are a lot of good uses for this series fantastic and and um just a, a completely unrelated question and you can answer this any way you want are you going to be at banner this year no oh that's too bad but you are going to be in the area I will be preaching a wedding that week and probably at the <laughs> rehearsal dinner during the Banner Conference. See, I know, I know things that the listeners are probably scratching their head going, what does that have to do with anything? What well, to worry about it. I was just curious to see if I would see him at Banner and then, anyway. <laughs> I thought I'd ask on the air instead of off the air that question. But be that as it may, if you can go to the Banner Conference, and I'm sure Dr. McGraw would agree with this completely, then go. Um, if you're a minister of the gospel, if you're a, a ruling elder, a teaching elder, go. It is a fantastic conference. Um, and I've been three three years in a row, and now this will be my fourth year. I am very much looking forward to it, um, and I always do. Um, I'm always fed and edified and encouraged, not just in the formal lecturing lectures, but also in the the informal fellowship that occurs all the way around the, the, the structured times. So um, it's really a good two and a half days uh, with other men. Um, in the ministry, particularly, um, in talking with them, struggles, successes, joys, sorrows. Um, it's a good time. And, and I say that for Banner's sake, they've been very helpful to the podcast in the faith and practice segments that we do with Dr. Piper. Many of you know now that we use Banner. Um, they are gracious to us in helping get books from the Banner of Truth to our listeners as they submit questions for the podcast. So anyway, I do that for their benefit and to help them as much as I am able and thankful to them for, for what they do for us. So anyway, well, Ryan, it's been good. I know you're, you've got a busy day ahead. Um, and, um, but I appreciate you talking about this and I know you always enjoy talking about Owen anyway. So yes, not to mention, not to mention the fact that one of your children is named Owen. <laughs> well, thank you. Bill. I wonder how, how did that happen? <laughs> it was, anyway. yeah, it was an accident. Yeah, right. Sure. There's no. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, I do appreciate you being on. If you could just hang on just a second while I wrap things up, just quickly for the listener's sake. um, I'm still formulating some things for the future during the summer. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I've been very busy with other matters. And um, but I'm now that I'm kind of back in the saddle, as it were, on the podcast side of things, I'm still working on some things coming up other programs so i can't really tell you what that is um but if you go to our website confessingourhope.com you can get the information there so until next time I do thank you for listening to this particular edition of confessing our hope the podcast of greenville presbyterian theological seminary and god bless